Welcome to the Taiwanese Diaspora Podcast, where we use personal storytelling to connect people of Taiwanese heritage from all around the world. I am Cynthia, and I'm excited to use this podcast platform as a way to explore what it means to be Taiwanese next. This is episode 37. Today, we welcome Michelle Wu, who is currently one of Boston's city councilors and is a candidate for the mayor of Boston. Elections will be November 2021. She kicked off her campaign last fall, and it is in full swing. I recorded her speech at one of the kickoff events for my neighborhood, and we'll be playing that as part of this episode. This episode is bilingual in Mandarin Chinese and English. 大家好，欢迎收听台湾人网络广播，我是阿秀，用这个平台来跟华侨华裔的台湾人聊他们的生活过程和未来的梦想。我们今天聊的是用国语跟英文。这是第三十七集，今天很高兴欢迎到吴米
and there's, there's so, so much, much more we need to do. We can build wealth in all of our communities. Value public education. Plan for our neighborhoods, not big developers. We can invest in housing we can afford. And transportation that serves everyone. We can truly fund public health for safety and healing. And deliver on a city Green New Deal for clean air and water, healthy homes, and a brighter future for our children. We for climate justice and has been before that was a cool thing to be. So thank you so much, Ricky, and I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for you. Um, can everyone hear me okay like this? Okay. Oh, it's been a whirlwind four days. Um, it's official now, official, official. <laughs> My name is Michelle Wu, and I am running for mayor of Boston because Boston should be a city for everyone. We have the resources here to do it. We have the activism, we have the ideas. We just need bold, urgent leadership. And I'm someone who would have been shocked growing up knowing that one day I might be standing here talking to a group like this of incredible leaders who care so much about this city. I'm the daughter of immigrants and I never once thought as a young girl that I might run for office, be a leader, uh, it wasn't just that I never saw anyone who looked like me in these positions, but the fact that my parents actively kept me away from politics. And it wasn't until much later on in my life that I realized that in my family's multi-generational immigration history, politics meant fear. Right? When my parents came to the U.S. from Taiwan and their parents had immigrated from mainland China in the midst of civil war, politics was corruption and famine and a whole lot of things happening to your family that they were trying to escape. And so they came to the US with the dreams that their kids would have a better life and that my kids would have a better life. And they tried as hard as they could to keep this protective bubble around us, shielding us from politics, right? We were told over and over again growing up, when you, you know, graduate from school, when you get a job, make sure it's one that pays a lot of money, 
is stable and where you won't get into trouble, right? So politics was not supposed to be anything that we just talked about. But I know, as we all know, when we are stuck in our own little bubbles, struggling with our own challenges and problems, one by one, quarantined by ourselves, that only lasts so long. And we are all connected, sharing these same struggles. And until we burst these bubbles, until we can come together and solve the systemic issues that are happening, we will not be able to be healthy, safe, happy as a society, as a family, as, as a city. That moment in my life and in my family's life when that little protective bubble burst came in the form of a phone call from my sister. I had just graduated from school. I was living downtown and working in Boston and you know, my first job out of college, living that young professional life and doing exactly what my parents had said I should be doing. And my sister called and said, there's something very wrong with mommy. You have to come home now. When I got back to the house that I grew up in, I realized that my mom was in the midst of a mental health crisis. She wasn't eating, she wasn't sleeping, she was self-medicating with alcohol for a while, she was hearing things that no one else was hearing and experiencing paranoia and delusions. And she had gone in just a couple of months from being that central force, taking care of everyone in the family to being completely inside herself, unable to take care of her own needs much less care for my two younger sisters who were around 10 and 16 at that time. And so at the age of 22, 23, felt like almost overnight, I went from being a young professional working downtown to being a mom to my sisters and a mom to my mom. That shattered the illusion that government or politics could not matter, right? Could be shielded from anyone. And everything that we were trying to do usually ended up butting heads against some system, some government agency, some structure that was supposed to be there to help when you most needed that help. Whether it was taking care of my sisters and trying to get them into the schools that they needed to acknowledge the trauma that they were experiencing at home while then trying to present themselves as students in the classroom, or trying to get my mom the help that she needed, the mental health care, that our insurance would cover with a provider who could speak the language she was most comfortable in and that was culturally competent and sensitive. Or starting a small family business that I was trying to get off the ground to keep us going. And as someone who could speak English fluently, had graduated with a degree, had worked in business for a little bit, had read the entire municipal code around restaurants, it was still impossible to figure out how we were supposed to do this. And then when I talk to other people in the same situations, caring for a family member, a parent or a guardian of, of kids in school, a small business owner trying to keep their family going, it was the exact same situation, the exact same frustrations of having to fight government just to support your family and your community. So I vowed then that I would do something about that. If I could, you know, I was gonna work in a city agency, I would be that person behind the counter making sure I was stamping the applications much faster. I would maybe be a chief of staff to an agency head and streamline permitting or fix something about school bureaucracies. And I came to law school to get the skills to do that. And then another funny thing happened in my life when on that first day of law school, 
one professor was unlike the others. She didn't come in and give that same welcome to Harvard Law School, you're gonna do great, we're gonna have a wonderful semester together. There was no introduction, no welcome, no kind words. The clock ticked to 10, she walked into the classroom, put down the textbook, and just started cold calling people fiercely. <laughs> and when Elizabeth Warren decided to run for Senate just two years later, I showed up at her office hours. I said, I will do anything to make sure that your vision of fighting for families across this state happens. What can I do? I don't have any experience to offer, but I will do whatever it takes. And she put me to work right here in our city, making phone calls, knocking on doors, my first political experience. By the end of the campaign, I was able to run our program doing outreach to communities that are usually left out of the political process. Black and Latinx communities and immigrant families, non-English speaking communities, the LGBTQ community, women, anyone defined by a facet of identity or community rather than just geography. And in that experience, I saw you, you can have amazing people in government, you can have great ideas, but unless you are changing the politics, unless you are bringing people into the process of deciding what the vision is to begin with, we will not get to that systemic change that we need. And so after that election, I, worked, I met many of you um, during that process, and, and we made history in Massachusetts by electing the very first woman to the US Senate with Elizabeth Warren in 2012. And then we turned, <laughs> absolutely. And then we started to turn our eyes to making history on the Boston City Council. When I ran in 2013, we were trying to double the number of women on the Boston City Council, right? From one to two. <laughs> and when I was able to join then Councilor Ayanna Presley, now our amazing, amazing Congresswoman, I saw that from on the Boston City Council, we could transform how people thought about city government. That yes, it is absolutely fundamental that we take care of potholes and street lights and trash pickup and making sure everything is safe and clean. But cities can lead on policy too. Cities can take on the big fights that we have all done together over the last seven years. Writing the legislation that set national precedents when it came to paid parental leave right here in the city of Boston. Writing the legislation for healthcare equity to prohibit discrimination by gender identity and protect our trans city workers. Legislation to require translation, interpretation, and assistive technology for anyone to access city services. Legislation, a lot of folks in, in right here have, have worked on this with me to make sure that we are ramping up renewable energy and committing to a green climate just future for the city of Boston. And it's not just the many ordinances and direct pieces of legislation that we passed, Together, we have changed the conversation about what is possible all across the state and even the country. We took on Airbnb when everyone said, don't do it, they'll sue you, it won't work. And when Boston fought, when I was proud to draft that ordinance, one of the most protective in the country when it came to ensuring that we would have housing stability and protect tenants in Boston from predatory corporate loopholes they took us to court. We fought and we set a precedent when we won so that every other city could implement ordinances just like ours. And then after that, after Airbnb threw 
hundreds of thousands of dollars to try to sway that decision. I was proud to draft an ordinance to require disclosure for lobbying so we can see exactly how dollars were influencing future decisions as well. We've changed the conversation on equity in Boston. Again, partnering with then Councillor Presley, we passed an ordinance that requires city contracting to be transparent, equitable, and ensure that we are putting our money where our mouth is and aligning our spending with our values to close the racial wealth gap. Right? So even as of 2018, when $664 million of discretionary city spending went out for goods and services, less than 1% of those contracts went to businesses owned by people of color in this city. Less than 1% went to women-owned businesses, and just about 1% went to Boston-based businesses. That has to change. Yes. And I'm gonna, okay, I can get off my policy soapbox soon, but I gotta do one more. <laughs> this is not even a city issue, or at least that was said to us again and again, but transportation. <laughs> when the MBTA said, again, we're gonna raise fares on the backs of the very people who are doing the most for climate change, on the, very, on the backs of the very people who rely on our system and can't afford other options, we changed the conversation. We mobilized, protested, we're at every single MBTA station, and not only did we roll back some of those fare hikes, so we turned an across-the-board fare hike proposal um, into one that protected bus riders, no fare hikes for anyone riding our buses, protected seniors, and protected youth, but we also changed the national conversation about public transportation as a public good. Yes. Transportation should be fare free, yes. accessible to all, reliable, safe, convenient. And now more than ever, when our systems are broken down to the very core of it, we need Boston to recognize that our true legacy as a city, our history, is one of investing in that common good. Right. Right? We are standing in the city that was the birthplace of our democracy, but also the birthplace of public education, right? the first public school in the country right here, the first public park anywhere in the country right here in Boston, the first public library. Imagine trying to do that today. I'm gonna create a space, people can go in, they can take whatever they want, they just have to promise they'll bring it back. It was revolutionary to realize that by investing in free access to our shared intellectual history, our culture, that we would be investing in all of us, in our strength and our resilience together. That is what we need in this moment, more than anything else, to recognize the ways in which we are connected, and that by investing in our common, shared collective future, we are lifting up all of us. Boston can do that. We deserve great schools for every single one of our kids, every one of them. We deserve a public health system that keeps everyone truly healthy and safe. We deserve a development process that isn't based on special exceptions and insider influence, but on the planning around needs that our communities face today and generations in the future. We can close the racial wealth gap in the city. We have the resources to do it, and we need to get it done through our housing priorities, through city contracting, through investing in black-owned businesses, through 
directing our resources to black and Latinx communities. And we need to change the conversation about housing right here in, in our city. Housing is a fundamental human right. And in a city of tremendous wealth, where over the last seven, eight years, we have seen a building boom unlike any other, the fact that people are still being displaced across every neighborhood of our city and struggling to find a safe, healthy place to lay their head at night is unconscionable. We can do better, and we are going to do that for this city. Okay, so now I'm officially off the policy soapbox. Um, I wanna talk a little bit about how we're gonna get all this done, right? Because these are big ideas. They are the scale that matches the need in our communities, but we can only get this done when there is a partnership with community. And so this campaign is going to be you know, a little earlier than your typical um, citywide campaigns are announced because we need this time to organize. We need the time to build infrastructure, to strengthen our relationships with community groups, to support organizing in every community, and to talk about the big ideas, not just one time in a platform that goes out right before the election, but again and again and again, to come to the agreement on where we need to move forward and, and to earn a mandate on what we will do for the city starting on day one. So here are the commitments that, that I will make to you all. Um, I am asking for your help in this campaign. I'm asking for your heart. I'm asking for your energy. I'm asking for your commitment for leadership that will be unafraid to fight the big fights. For leadership that won't be bought off by corporate interests or closed off with old ways of thinking and most of all for leadership that won't divide us because we will see all of our fights as each other's. And most of all, I just wanna say, I'm so grateful for this moment that we have. This is truly a once in a generation moment, a moment where everybody's awareness is together and everybody realizes what those who have always been left out and left behind have always known, that we are strongest when we're together and that we can we, can, we have the resources to make sure that we can deliver opportunity for every single one of our families. So thank you so much for being here tonight. We have a lot of work to do, but we're gonna do it. I'm just gonna read a quick bio from the City of Boston's website. Michelle Wu has been a voice for accessibility, transparency, and community engagement in city leadership. First elected to the Boston City Council in November 2013, at the age of 28, Wu was the first Asian American woman to serve on the council. In 2016, she was elected president of the city council by her colleagues in a unanimous vote, becoming the first woman of color to serve as council president. Councilor Wu was the lead sponsor of Boston's paid parental leave ordinance and healthcare equity ordinance prohibiting discrimination against gender identity, both of which passed unanimously through the council and were signed into law by former Mayor Martin Walsh. Uh, Martin Walsh, by the way, is now serving as Secretary Biden's Labor Secretary. Michelle also authored Boston's Communications Access Ordinance, which guarantees translation interpretation, and assistive technology for access to city services, regardless of English language proficiency or communications disability.
Wu got her start in City Hall, working for Mayor Thomas Menino as a Rappaport Fellow in Law and Public Policy, where she created the city's first guide to the restaurant permitting process from start to finish, and was also a driving force to launch Boston's food truck program. She later served as statewide constituency director in the U.S. Senate campaign for her former law professor, Elizabeth Warren. As a former restaurant owner, legal services attorney, and legal guardian of her younger sister, Wu understands firsthand the barriers that families and communities face. She has a background in community advocacy, having worked at the Wilmer Hale Legal Services Center in Jamaica Plain, providing legal advice to low-income small business owners, as well as at the Medical Legal Partnership at Boston Medical Center on immigration law cases for survivors of domestic violence. In 2016, Councilor Wu was honored as one of 10 outstanding young leaders by the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce and as part of Marie Claire Magazine's New Guard, the 50 Most Influential Women in America. Michelle Wu graduated from Harvard College and Harvard Law School. She is fluent in Mandarin and Spanish and lives in Roslindale with her husband, Connor, and her sons, Blaze and Cass. I'm honored to welcome Michelle Wu to the show today. Councilor Wu, thank you for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, I saw your video for the campaign kickoff. I was like, oh my gosh, you're at least trilingual, which is so amazing. <laughs> that was super stressful. The Chinese one, most of all, because I mean, you know, formal Mandarin is so, so hard yeah. compared to the difference in other languages between just sort of casual versus formal speaking. So <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm trying to do this as like a way to practice. So I, I totally get yeah. it. Um, sure. So can you do a introduction in Chinese about who you are? Great. Um, 大家好,我的名字是吴米. 我是一位波士顿的市议员, 那时候毕业以后 市政府和政府上的影响就比较重要的关系和经济上的有很多办法能够改善。所以你在芝加哥长大,然后后来搬到保时顿,为什么选哈佛大学?然后你后来又回去上law <笑> So maybe just address that really quick. Opportunity, 
因为你之之前也有去当 consultant in between。嗯哼，嗯哼，嗯哼，嗯，真的是因为我们我们家庭的时候，妈妈妈妈在就是经验这些困难的时候，所有我们全家都有就是压力很大，然后觉得政府方面的应应该有支持，应该有有帮助，但是那时候真正的就是看到。最需要帮助的时候，其实上有很大的这个区别，有很大的的障碍。所以我申请法学院是是想要将来可以把所有的法律上方面和政府方面的问题，就是为了其他的家庭比较嗯、呃、简单一点啊、呃。但是我我在哈佛。法学院的第一天就见到一位教授，叫 Elizabeth Warren， 跟他读 contract law 之后，他就开始竞选麻省的当麻省的参议员，然后我那时候就就开始 volunteer， 然后开始就是学政治方面和政府方面有对于我们尤其是。不说英文，或者啊、呃，就是移民到美国，或者啊、呃，就是和政府比较 unfamiliar 的的啊、呃、文化和家庭，我们需要候选人能够懂事和重视这些啊、呃、这些家庭。你刚才讲到，就是你上大学的时候，你妈妈有经过一些精神的困难，你觉得？在亚洲这个文化上 ，oftentimes mental health isn't really talked about. So, you think if there's anything, how can people talk about it more broadly? It's incredibly important to talk about, but I think within the Asian Asian culture, Asian familiarity, it's, it's still kind of like a new. I don't know if it's a new thing or just a very taboo topic. Yes. Yeah. To to be yeah to to talk about it to. Um, to ask for help about it, to even acknowledge it. So it it took me a long, long time to even be able to talk about it. And in some ways, that's what made it so hard, especially at the beginning, is because you know, I was in my early twenties and my sisters were much younger, and it was impacting everything. Right, my sister's ability to.、Um, Do their schoolwork, and then needing to explain to teachers why you know they weren't able to get sleep at night because there there was just an incident, and、um, you know it took us even a while just to be able to talk to people who did who really needed it to 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 offer support. So I think so much of what I've learned and experienced is that when we all try to self isolate in this way, in fact. We it's it's even harder be, to address these systemic issues, and so every time I'm able to share my story on some, you know, the having the privilege of being on this podcast and 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 other platforms and mediums, I always hear so many stories of people who are going through similar things in their family, and we are so so quiet about this as a society. You know, the prevalence and the Shared experience of mental health and and stress and anxiety and 
all of the ways in which we make it impossible for people to juggle everything. So the more that we talk about it, the more we're likely to be able to change the policies and, and really prioritize this because so many people are affected. Yeah, thank you. 那如果对于中国人如果有遇到这种困难的情况的话，然后英文不是他们第一个语言，你觉得他们应该怎么样找帮助 ？Yeah， 我我觉得这个压力不应该在每个家庭的身上，应该是我们应该是市政府或者州政府，我们我们的这个 public sector 应该。从这个开始的这一点，已经有帮助，已经有其他语言，所有语言的这些 access points。我们在波士顿有个 ordinance， 嗯、um, ，就是关于 language access and communications access， 就是某一个某一个语言都可以有所有的文化都可以到波士顿市政府来找 services or or programs。And and the law requires that there has to be translation. You know, can be translated to all the languages. Access requirement.、Um, but the other issue with mental health is that sometimes it's more than just a language barrier. It is about insurance and what's covered and whether the providers. Kind of reflect and understand the cultural parts of it too, and so it made a big, big difference when、uh, my mom could find services in Chinatown at the local community health center in the language that、uh, she was comfortable with, and and with a provider who understood kind of the full context of everything. But it took a long time to be able to get to that point, and there were many, many spaces and、um, even healthcare institutions where we felt. Just this tremendous sense of being dehumanized, almost、um, just so misunderstood and and so invisible there. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks for sharing that. Okay, so you took a class with Elizabeth Warren. That really was. It sounds like a transformational experience in helping you make a decision that you wanted to become a politician as well. And so, what are some of the, I guess, the challenges that you faced that were either unexpected? How has being Asian American influenced that experience, if at all? Do you think that you've had glass ceiling or bamboo ceiling type moments being a woman and an Asian? You're also the youngest member of the Boston City Council, also one of the first, the first Asian American woman on the Boston City Council as well. So I think you're just knocking down all these walls, but I'm sure it wasn't easy. Yeah, and well, thank goodness、um, I am no longer the youngest as of this last election cycle. For my first six years on the council, I was,、um, but now we have two colleagues who have joined,、uh, who are younger than me, which is wonderful to make sure there's just this this new generation of leadership really stepping up and showing how important it is to, you know, bring energy and ideas and, and activism into the process.、Um, it's, I think, no matter what. Facet of identity we're talking about, whether it's racial or ethnic identity, or your age, or gender identity, or、um, you know some other part of your background. Anytime you're the first, or the only, or one of just a few, there is an additional burden and responsibility on that. You know, it's very much 
part of the lens of how others see you, you know, implicitly and um, often with stereotypes attached to that. There's also a sense of, you know, how many people you are needing to not speak for, but um, make sure are remembered and prioritized in these spaces. And so as the only Asian American woman to have served on the council in Boston ever, and as the only Asian American serving now, there is a feeling of what it, you know, in, in this, in the times when I'm not at the table or I'm not part of this discussion, um, what happens and, and, and who is there. And so um, I think trying to make sure that we are, we're not satisfied with there being one of, of um, any type of representation, but really that there's a, a pipeline and a recognition of how important it is for every community to be connected to government. There are very few places around the country where Asian Americans represent a majority of the population, right? So um, in Boston, as with many other places, to be elected as an Asian American necessarily means that you are building coalitions beyond your own community, uh, you know, defined by ethnicity. And Boston is such a multicultural city, multi-ethnic, um, just so much diversity packed into a relatively, a relatively small sort of geographic area. And that means we are in, in represent, you know, representing the whole city on city council for seven years and now running for mayor, um, really focused on how to build that multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multilingual coalition as well. Why do you think it's important for people to get involved in local politics? What sort of on-the-ground change do you think being involved can generate as a member of the community? Yeah, and the numbers are really stark on that. If you look at the data on voter turnout, just within the city of Boston, about half as many people come out to vote in a mayoral race as they do uh, for a governor's race, right? It's even less compared to the presidential year. Um, and then in the years where there's uh, only the city council on the ballot and not the mayor's race, because uh, the city council is two-year terms and the mayor's every four. So in those off-year, odd-year elections, you know, sometimes it's a quarter of the voter turnout of the statewide um, election years. And that means that a really important set of offices are being shaped without the majority of folks weighing in. And I think sometimes it is a function of just having so much in people's lives that you really have to be kind of saturated with the visibility and reminder of an election to to get to the point where you're saying, oh, you know, like, I, I have to make time for this because you're taking care of kids, you're working multiple jobs, it's, it's just, there's so much happening, especially in this moment. And so when it is a presidential election and there's constantly coverage of that on the news, on TV, you know, everyone's talking about it, it gets to the point where you know, you'll remember that it's election day or, or you know, early voting period or whatever it is. But for the city elections, when you don't have the national media covering it, you barely have the local newspapers covering it, um, it, it often is just word of mouth, people who are plugged in, and then whatever resources campaigns have to directly reach people. And so we're working really hard to make sure that we have the resources 
to go door to door and when it's safe to be expanding the voter turnout at the city level. But um, it's, you know, I, I, it, it's something that I think culturally in this country we often don't see is people weighing in as much in general in elections and especially at the local level when in fact it is, you know, obviously I'm a little biased, but I, I think I can also objectively say in a number of fronts that it is the most important place that touches people's daily lives. Whether your streets are clean and safe and whether housing is affordable, whether the schools are quality and nurturing, whether you have access to healthcare resources. I mean, just all of that is shaped by who your city council and mayor or, or you know, otherwise city representatives are. And we want people to feel that there's a real stake in this and that by getting involved, there's also an immediate impact of doing so too. You've built coalitions with a number of different organizations. So I'm personally really interested in the Green New Deal. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, this is an area where city leadership can make a big, big difference. And when we have such a small and closing window to affect our climate future, to build a world that will be habitable for the next generation, cities really need to step up. And when cities lead, it has tremendous impacts even beyond our borders to shape the national conversation, to build momentum. For Green New Deal changes across the country. So we have proposed a municipal Green New Deal, the first in the country to put forward a set of proposals specifically on what at the local level we can implement within city power. There's 15 different proposals that we talk about mostly as examples to show the breadth of what we are, what we mean by climate justice, but also how feasible it is to see changes that would have a huge impact. Things from what you might expect in a climate plan, including accelerating decarbonization timelines and converting to clean energy, starting with all city buildings on 100% renewable energy. It's our stormwater infrastructure and making that more resilient, particularly in a city like Boston, where rain and precipitation is getting heavier and heavier, and we're seeing our, our stormwater system contribute to flooding. Um, it's growing the urban tree canopy for all the benefits that that brings of absorbing a lot of the particulates to, for cleaner air and, and cooling the, the surrounding area and the mental health benefits of trees and green areas. And then we really want to emphasize that it's also climate justice is housing justice. Right? It's also supporting our small businesses and making sure there's an equitable recovery. It's connecting the workforce development pieces of our you know, future green economy into the benefits on to, to public health and open space and all that as well. Boston really has so many resources. So most of all, I want to to paint this as not just avoiding harms, but reaching out for the potential that we have of a city where everyone has a say, everyone is part of shaping our collective future together. Um, and so there's lots of specifics in there. It comes down to really making sure that we are threading climate justice into every decision of the city and planning at a scale and a timeline that really matches the impacts that we're seeing. We, we can't just keep making decisions on a day-to-day -day basis in a really reactionary way or even year-to-year -year based on elections and, and what we'll see in feasible, politically feasible 
before or after the next election. This is really about planning out to a time scale of what kind of city do we want to pass on to our kids and our grandkids and future generations and repairing some of the harms that have been done through policies in the past. Can you talk a little bit more about the process of how you've been engaging with the different community groups within Boston to help shape the different policy proposals that you've done for the Green New Deal, but also for housing and others? Yeah, I think our Congresswoman Ayanna Presley says it best that the people closest to the pain should be closest to the power. And unless our policies really start from the vision and leadership within community, they won't actually have the impact that we hope they'll achieve. And so whatever policy it is, I think making sure that it's not just about the changes that are made, but who gets to be at the table and where are we building these tables, right? Are we are we meeting people where they're at in um, opening up and democratizing the process of decision-making in our city? So this particular Green New Deal platform, which is, you know, dozens and dozens of pages long, comes from so many amazing activists, experts, community leaders, residents who share their insights about what happens in Boston now and what has happened in other places across the country, as well as what we could be doing to organize around these ideas and build a wider and wider coalition to get them done. What advice do you have for anybody who's interested in getting involved in campaigns in general or a political career and any specific advice for those who are in minority represented groups? Just to be yourself and really don't feel like you have to fit into a certain box to be able to participate, to lead, to have an impact. I think when I first started running, I I can still remember so many conversations, really well-intentioned conversations where people are explaining to me very um, simply that it just wasn't going to happen. I wasn't going to get elected because I didn't X, Y, Z. And most of it was related to the sense that here's what your typical Boston politician looked like, sounded like, where they came from, where they were born, all of this stuff. Um, and therefore, you know, it, it was just impossible. I, at that point, felt like I really wanted to be a voice for so many of the struggles that my family had been experiencing and that I know so many others were going through, and I would just try. But since that moment, I realized just how many people have been discouraged from stepping up into positions of leadership because sometimes well-intentioned, but most often, you know, kind of based on stereotypes or just old ways of thinking, people have been told that this isn't the job for them because it's always been this kind of person who has had it. And that is precisely what we need to shatter to be able to connect our policies to communities, right? Every community should feel connected to government. That is why representation is so important. Um, And so if you're interested in getting involved in campaigns and running for office, I think I encourage folks to think of it not just from the perspective of do you as an individual feel ready in that moment to do it, but think about your community and what will your community miss out on if you're not stepping up to ensure that they're at the table and part of the power structure and the decision making. And then just in terms of the really nitty gritty of of how to run and, and getting involved, don't feel like you are excluded unless you've been, you know, 
a certain number of years involved with accumulating titles on your resume or that you need a you know need to have been born there or anything like that i think the central question that people are really trying to gauge when you're a candidate for office is whether you understand and want to do something about the challenges that they're facing whether you have a vision and are motivated and authentically passionately connected to trying to make it happen. So sometimes it's natural to assume that someone is connected and understands if they were from there, right? You have similar experiences, you kind of have an assumed familiarity, but there's many ways in which you might be more familiar, even though you weren't you know, born there, if, if you've raised your family here, if you've gone to school here, if you've contributed, if you've been involved in the community, if you've in some ways gotten to know and love the community, most of all, that's that's what this job is. It is getting the privilege to represent a place that you love and people that you care about and trying your best to focus on how to make people's lives just a little bit better every day. That is the most amazing thing about being in government. This is the one industry that was created solely to help people, right? And there are many, many other places that you can help, of course, through the private sector, of course, through the nonprofit sector, where you also have to think about profits, or you also have to think about shareholders or um, your revenues and how to manage all the organizational pieces. Government is is this force that was created to do the things that we can't do as individuals. Um, and so please, if you're interested in running, we need your leadership and we need you to step up as soon as you are ready. What would you say are maybe three things that you learned from working on Elizabeth Warren's campaign? Yeah, and it was an incredible experience. It was my first time working on a campaign and getting to see at the ground level and then organizationally what a difference it makes when a campaign actually prioritizes and puts resources towards meeting people where they're at. I think especially in politics when uh, and related to elections, there's a set deadline of election day and you only have so many resources. And the sort of shortcut or sort of old way of thinking about things is that there are certain people who certain communities will vote no matter what, and you have to spend all of your time and energy talking to those communities. And then there are other communities that don't vote. And so it's not quote unquote worth it to spend your time talking to those communities, um, when in fact, that reinforcing cycle of perpetuating disempowerment and perpetuating inequities, it's why we are where we are with the, our policies in this country being so disconnected in some, in many cases from what people's lives really are like. And so the difference you can make when people are asked for their opinion, are encouraged to participate, are consulted about what the policy platform should reflect, and then the resources are put to connecting with those communities and engaging and turning out the vote. It's it's amazing to see just how fast things can change with both the leadership within government, uh, but also philosophy and on the political side that everyone counts and everyone's voices should be heard. You've done such an incredible job getting kicked off the last couple of months. You're basically popping up in every single Boston neighborhood and engaging with a number of different groups. 
how can people within Boston or outside of Boston get involved in your campaign? Um, what can they do to help? How can they volunteer? How can they donate? Thank you for asking. Every campaign is fueled by the financial contributions that allow us to build a team and to have materials to reach people in different languages and in different communities. And then also with the volunteer hours of people who are willing to reach out to their networks, uh, make phone calls and text messages and emails. So we're building out all sides of that. And if you go to our website, michelleforboston.com, you can sign up to help with any of it. Um, we are so grateful for grassroots support and this incredible city that that really has the energy to to see change and to see a new generation step up. Um, so we were putting everyone to work, organizing community by community, whether it's a geographic community or an issue-based community or identity-based community. We want to make sure we're creating spaces to build community, most of all, because it's one thing to get to election day and you know knock on wood be successful in this campaign but to really have an infrastructure that will serve the city well beyond election day for political engagement for policy creation um, that's our goal to build community and be a platform for activism i love that you're such an inspiration okay last two things i'll let you go since the primary audience are people from Taiwanese American communities, Taiwanese abroad, do you have any reflections, memories, or anything you want to share about being a Taiwanese American? Have you visited Taiwan? Do you have favorite restaurants in Boston? Any favorite foods? Yeah, um, so I have been to Taiwan a couple times, and just uh, I think the last time must have been in twenty. 15, 20, 15, 16, anyway, a couple of years ago. And it was amazing to see all of these places that I've heard so much about and seen in all my parents' photos and just the incredible commitment to climate and innovation and mass transit and to get off the plane and see there were signs all over the place for uh, breastfeeding rooms, for, for new moms. I'm just a society that really values people and invests in people. I would do almost anything to get a branch of Think Typhoon in, in the United States and in Boston. Please bring it to Boston. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, there's some really amazing spots in Boston we now get takeout uh, from, but would usually go almost weekly to a combination of Jojo Taipei if we were headed towards the Austin side. Um, or just to enjoy dim sum in Chinatown. Yeah, but I think there's all there's this incredibly vibrant and welcoming Taiwanese American community in Boston. Our numbers are strong, and it's been really amazing to to be part of it and to see how many people are connected to Boston. Um, you know, either because of school or other ties. To know that impact that our community has is wide and growing. And any self-care tips? Because I know you are super busy with kids, <laughs> campaigns, work on top of everything. I mean, um, I mean, I haven't been doing this as faithfully as I really should be right now because the end of the year, there's just so much happening with the campaign and et cetera. But um, usually on the scheduling side, a lot of it is just baked into my calendar of when there's time 
weekly, monthly for, you know, making sure that you get your hair cut or making sure that you have time just to block off the day and, and be with your family. We're, we really like to be outdoors a lot. So it, it gets harder when it's cold, but there's some amazing places to go hiking in the area, whether it's the Blue Hills really close by or further out west, um, you have a little more time to travel. And I think there's so much coming at us, all these various devices and screens and chargers and everything, we're always connected. I like to encourage people to try to find ways of connection that are not through devices, <laughs> whether it's calling your neighbors and seeing if they're okay or um, in different times, hosting a block party and finding spaces for people to come together to just be in each other's company. Thank you so much, Michelle. This is such a treat. Thank you for having me. This is fun. Thanks for all you do. And that's it for today. Please send me a message on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at T-W-D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A or shoot me an email. It's hello at TaiwaneseDiaspora.com. And if you or other people you know have stories that they'd like to share on this podcast, please send them my way as well. Some of you have asked about how to support the show. So if you are inclined, go to coffeeko-fi.com slash T-W-D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A to donate. And if you like to read, check out my book recommendations at bookshop.org slash shop slash T-W-D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A. And 10% of the proceeds will come back to support the show. All right. See you next time.